Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. We'll do all our normal worship activities this morning, but they're going to look a little different than they usually look. So please be patient. This morning we will remember our Savior's death and resurrection during our communion service. We will also commemorate the birth of the freest country in world history. America is unique because it was based on the principles of freedom that were implemented by wise men who believed in God and his divine institutions. And we'll hear more about our founding fathers and where their thoughts came from in creating the United States of America. Scott Shulman, thank you very much, has been willing, is willing to step in for the pastor today. The pastor is speaking at the Tullahoma Bible Conference hosted by Pastor Clay Ward. Pastor Ingram sends his best to all of you and hopes everyone enjoys learning about our history, God's place in that history, and celebrating Independence Day tomorrow. So before we get started, we'll take a moment for spiritual preparation. We must ensure we're in fellowship using 1 John 1 9 and acknowledging our sins to God in order to fully understand the meaning of the communion service and to glorify God in what we do today through both the study of his word and the thanksgiving we offer for the many blessings he has given us and continues to give us. So let's bow our heads and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the promises you have given us and for your sustaining power. We thank you for all the blessings you have given this nation. We thank you for your word and for the opportunity we have to study it and apply it to our lives. And we ask that the Holy Spirit will guide us in our worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom on this first Sunday of the month to observe the Lord's table in which we commemorate the most wonderful event to ever occur in human history. On the evening prior to his crucifixion, our Lord wanted to ensure that everyone who observed the cross would know that this was the signature event for the new covenant. This was a sacrifice that the world needed. During Old Testament times, Israel would make an animal sacrifice known as the Passover lamb. But once Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins, the world would then remember as we are doing today, the efficacious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. During those events, God the Father demonstrated his love for us by giving his one-of-a-kind son. His only son removed the guilt of sin for the entire human race. In response to our Father's act of grace, what are we to do? Simply believe on his son as our Savior. The purpose of the Lord's table is to remind us of this grace in providing all that needs to be done for our salvation. It's not dependent upon who and what we are or what we have done, but depends completely on who Jesus Christ is and what he did. The Lord's table helps us remember who the Lord Jesus Christ was and what he accomplished on our behalf. It's designed to help us focus on the biblical truth that is taught through the symbolism of the elements. It is not the elements themselves that have significance, but it is what the bread and the cup represent that have meaning. We do not worship the elements, but the person and truths that they illustrate. The unleavened bread pictures the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. 
Jesus Christ was fully God and undiminished deity, but he was also true humanity, united in one person in his first advent, his incarnation. In his human substitute, in his human body and life, he was without sin. He was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute and to take upon himself the judicial penalty for our sins. The cup symbolizes his blood, which represents Christ's work on the cross, his spiritual death, and the payment for the sins of the entire world. He died spiritually on the cross so that we might have spiritual life. Therefore, the bread represents our Lord's qualification in his person to go to the cross, and the cup represents the sacrifice of Christ while on the cross. These are the thoughts that we should be reminded of during the communion service. Since his death on the cross paid for the sins of the entire human race, there is nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve salvation. It is simply an acceptance of a free gift. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave to them the ability to become the children of God. Salvation is achieved by faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, the Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not require church membership or anything else. The only prerequisite is that you're a believer and that you're in fellowship. So I'm going to ask Bill Sin, who will be passing the elements, to come forward. As he comes forward, we'll bow our heads together in silent prayer to ensure that there are no unconfessed sins. And then I will ask him then to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Let's bow our heads. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Once more, the wafer or unleavened bread represents his body, his sinless perfection as he went to the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. The same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. As before, it's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. The cup of juice represents his blood, which in turn represents his spiritual death on the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, his spiritual death, the forgiveness of sins. In the same manner, the Lord Jesus Christ also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to pay for the penalty for our sin. We thank you that we can do nothing for our salvation except to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. We thank you for this opportunity to remember what our Savior has done for us, and we ask that you will continue to remind us of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 26.30, we're told that after Jesus led the disciples in the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn before they departed. Now, we don't know what hymn they sang, but we're going to sing hymn number 228. So please please stand. We'll sing 
All four verses, hymn number 228, I will sing of my Redeemer. This is our opportunity to worship the Lord in giving. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their attitude toward giving. It is never a matter of compulsion or of guilt. It is dependent only on your own attitude in giving to glorify God through whatever you are able and willing to give. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 says, The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful or willing giver. Since giving is part of our worship of the Lord, we provide this opportunity to express our love for him and our gratitude for what he has given us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the blessings that you've given us, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship you by giving some of those blessings back. And we ask that you will bless these offerings this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We all set? Okay. Very good. Um, so I'm up because Dan can't be here, so Scott Craig was going to talk. Scott Craig can't be here, but he did prepare a nice message and asked me if I would deliver it. So that's what I'm going to do. If you like it, tell me. If you don't, tell Scott. Okay. I'm not too technically inclined, so I... I'm glad that Hal put that up before we started. Uh, So what we'd like to do is talk about Independence Day tomorrow. I'd like to talk about freedom within the context of American history and God's word. Perhaps a good question to ask ourselves first is, why do we have freedom today? And where did it come from? I believe it comes from the many sacrifices made by our ancestors and encouraged and guided by and through a strong faith in God. This is why the fledgling nation rose to greatness. And as their faith grew stronger and they increasingly recognized God's grace in everything they received, the nation flourished, providing us tremendous blessing that we enjoy today. I think we all see that. A gentleman, an aristocrat from France, Alexis de Tocqueville, had traveled around this new country as it was formed in the early 1800s. And in 1835, he wrote Democracy in America. In this book, he saw religion and freedom as inseparable. And he saw that religion was essential to democracy and was a counterweight to some of the main threats democracy faced, such as materialism on the one hand and greed, well, greed and religious fanaticism on the other hand. With that in mind, Scott wanted us to start by talking about George Washington, our founding father, and his inaugural address that he gave on 30 April 1789. He said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and endure the visible hand of God, which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. We ought to be no less persuaded that the favorable smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation which disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself ordained. I think these words and others like them from our founding fathers were based on their knowledge of the Bible. The president of Wall Builders, that's David Barton, wrote the following in one of his tracts entitled, America, God Shed His Grace on Me. He said, political scientists now know that the greatest single source of political inspiration from our founding fathers was the Bible, 
which was cited in roughly a third of the quotations from the founding era, which was 1760 to 1805. Here's another good example of wisdom from James Madison, our fourth president. He said, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. Madison and others recognized that a civil society derived its principles of conduct from the word of God. You know, we're on Zoom and I can envision Scott in his pajamas going over this as I'm talking and saying, oh, you might have missed a word here. He got one there. Um, <laughs> he went on to say, citing James 1.17, and to the same divine author of every good and perfect gift, we are indebted for all those privileges and advantages, religious as well as civil, which are so richly enjoyed by this favored land. As we know, God warns us throughout the Bible to not lose sight of his divine mandates and principles, which help us to grow spiritually as we study his word. The opposite is true when we lose sight of what made his, this nation great, which is why learning and understanding our history is so important. Without those two foundations, how can we gain understanding? And with that understanding, be a wise and faithful servant of God. Psalm 11.3 states, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This refers to the trials that believers will go through in life, which God will permit. Therefore, it's up to how we, as the righteous, respond, which is through faith in God and by perception of his word. He will certainly take care of all our needs. This is exactly what we need to be doing as the assault on Christianity and our freedom increases. And and that's exactly what our forefathers did before us. Here's a prayer by General George Washington offered before his soldiers as they were fighting the British. This was six years before he became president. He said, quote, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have the United States in his holy protection that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, that's what we call impersonal love, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind. These are the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without a humble imitation of of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Amen. That was his prayer. For me, prayers like this help us to understand why and how God's providence shined on our nation. Just think of the words he used, love for one another, charity, humility, justice. All these words should be very familiar to us from the study of the word. A gentleman named Stephen Alvin, sorry, Stephen Allen Sampson produced an article titled God's Providence in American History. In it, he said, quote, as a rule, Americans are ignorant of history. We are at a loss, especially when it comes to recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ in our own histories 
in our own country's history. He then continued to cite many Bible verses and closed with the following words. Unfortunately, many Christians are unwilling to recognize our legal heritage. We would do well to remember Jesus' teachings concerning servants like in Luke 12:48b, which says, quote, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Have we, over the years, as Americans, shirked our duties both as Christians and as citizens? Have we unburdened ourselves of our original commitments as citizen believers? These are questions we need to consider when we study our Christian heritage, which is enshrined in our founding documents. This is a challenge to learn our history and our heritage. Scott said he did not consider himself a historian. He's done a pretty good job of citing a lot of it. But he loves reading history. And one subject he loves reading about is God's providence displayed in this nation's past. Michael Medved, a well-known author of many books on Christianity and the Christian impact on a nation's society, wrote a book entitled The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. In it, he makes the case that the results of 12 different events in American history came directly from God's intervention or involvement. Of these are the Mayflower's voyage and both George Washington and Abraham Lincoln's impact at key times in this nation's history. Scott said Medved's book is a great, it's a great book if you want to learn more about our history and God's providence in that history. Next, I'd like to go through some passages of wisdom handed down by our forefathers, accompanied by passages from the Bible. This will highlight the ultimate source of wisdom and absolute truth, which we know comes from God. I think even though our founding fathers transmitted great wisdom to us, we should agree that God's wisdom was the source from which their thinking and actions were based. So let's take a look at freedom, where it comes from, why it's so important, and how easy it is to lose. The following verses tie to what Christ did for us and what is needed to keep the freedom he gave us. Galatians 5.1 is the first passage he cited, which says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is, of course, speaking of the bondage of sin, and how the yoke of sin can drive everything else in our life to include how we act as Christians and as citizens. Of course, as believers, the bondage of sin is easy to fix if you're operating within God's plan. You name your sins and move on with the revitalized focus on God's word. And we know that, of course, to be 1 John 1, nine. But when government moves from protecting the rights of its citizens to limiting those rights expressed in the Declaration of Independence and enumerated in our Constitution, another bondage is seen. So as Christians, we like our founding fathers, must ensure our faith carries us and faith perception of the word helps us to reveal evil wherever found, never letting it deceive us or worse yet, accept it. James one twenty five says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, word of God, and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed 
in what he does. That is, we need to practice the Christian way of life. The law of liberty here refers to the law of impersonal love or unconditional love, which God sees as important in executing our lives. Important because it touches on everything we do. The love for God, for friends, for family, for our nation, and yes, sometimes even for our enemies. Governor Morris, another of our founding fathers, once said, quote, I cannot conceive of a government in which there can exist two supremes. I came here, the Constitutional Convention, as a representative of America. I flatter myself that I came here in some degree as a representative of the whole human race, end quote. Governor Morris understood that God is in control, not government. And while government is certainly ordained by God, government and its citizens must remain servants of God's divine will. Now let's look at what another of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, had to say. Quote, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of the divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured, excuse me, obscured by moral power. Here he acknowledges that God can never be taken out of the picture in the affairs of man, but he can be ignored much to our detriment. Here's a beautiful verse from 2 Corinthians that nicely dovetails with this concept. It's 2 Corinthians 3, 17. And it reads, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And to that we'd say amen. Finally, we have James Madison, who provided the following to any of us who might think that the Founding Fathers believe God's Word and His principles were and must be kept separate from public life. They knew that not only was God's word vital to the success of the nation, but they also knew without it, the nation would not survive. Madison states, and that's of course essentially what Jefferson had said, Madison states, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And to the same divine author of every good and perfect gift, James 1.17, we are indebted for all those privileges and advantages, religious as well as evil, which are so richly enjoyed in this favored land. We've got a lot to be thankful for, one of which is being a citizen of this great country. And while our forefathers may not have fully realized what they were creating, when done, they had set a foundation within which divine establishment principles preordained by God for all mankind could be could flourish. These perfect ingredients were needed to both protect and bless us. We know these as Dan has taught us and as the divine institutions, including volition, marriage, family and nationalism. Today, all four of these are under attack because the focus on God and his word has waned and humanism has taken hold. And while we know that God controls history, he also disciplines those nations that stray from his divine establishment principles, which makes it so important that we as believers not only know God's will for us as believers, but as citizens as well. 
Scott also wanted me to relay some facts to you regarding the signers of the Declaration of Independence and what they sacrificed to ensure future, our future and America's future, and that it could live and freely worship God without constraint. Signers of the Declaration of Independence, he states that there were five signers that were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. And the point of this is to is for us to get an understanding as to some of their these uh, folks' courage. So again, five signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. That obviously took courage. What kind of men are they? were they? 24 were lawyers and jurists. 11 were merchants. 9 were farmers and large landowners. They were men of means. They were well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died penniless. Thompson McKean, also so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers were both looted the properties of Ellery, Clymer, Hall, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. The owner quietly urged General Washington to open fire. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his grist mill were laid to waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. These were the stories and sacrifices of the American Revolution. They were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. Standing tall, straight, and unwavering, they pledged, Quote, for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. End quote. Most have heard the following quote, which shows me we still have leaders that understand what freedom means, yet how tenuous it is. Something our founding fathers understood. These words are as true today as they were over 200 years ago. I quote, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children genetically. It must be fought for, protected, 
and handed down to them to do the same. For one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. So then, what questions should we ask ourselves today? I think one should be, is God's divine providence with us today? Or are we struggling to maintain it? Or are we close to losing it? It's probably somewhere in the middle. But I do know for sure the assault on Christianity is real. Thankfully, because God's truth can never be defeated, we have hope. And we know from Dan's teaching that many times in the Bible we find the word hope actually means confidence. So we must be ever vigilant and never let God's truth be suppressed. We can't fail in our perception of what God continually provides us. For if we do, divine providence that shined on this nation once will be a thing of the past. John 8:31 and 32 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So it's the absolute truth from the word of God that ultimately sets us free and provides the truths that built and sustained this nation for over 200 years. And while man's laws may in fact protect our freedoms, they can also limit or restrict them. Psalm 119.45 clearly states that his laws and precepts free us and give us the peace that will come when we follow the Lord's instruction. It says, quote, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Here's another wonderful thought of one of the greatest men of the past, which by no means is as important as what I previously presented. Winston Churchill. He once said, quote, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, end quote. And while I believe this is true, history can only reflect good and bad decisions. But it's the word of God that provides us the standard and the absolute truths to guide our decisions and our lives. And only by following Christ can we be expected to perform as his disciples while on this earth, sharing his word with our fellow citizens and helping others to enjoy God's blessings and our nation's freedoms. So before closing, I'd like to end with five takeaways to think about over Independence Day. First, America was founded based on men and women seeking the freedom to worship God and to flee from the tyranny of government. Second, our founding fathers developed the principles for a government designed to protect those freedoms where a small government had limited powers. Because of the attitude of the American people towards God and a government based on the principles from God, his grace shined on America with his providence evident in the blessings he has provided for us for over 247 years. Fourth, the citizen's attitude toward God determines how he deals with a nation. The question is, will our corporate attitude today result in blessings or discipline? Only time will tell. Last and finally, we all must remember that the only absolute truth is found in the word of God And the only true freedom is derived from God. Therefore, our foundation is secure through God and his word, which is never man-made. Scott's closing words were, Our spiritual and national heritage must be a heritage we pass on to the next generation. So we're able to celebrate the birth of this great nation 
for many years to come. Happy Independence Day to the National Capital Bible Church members and all Americans across the country and abroad. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the nation you formed some 247 years ago. A nation that illuminated freedom and identified our inalienable rights in its founding documents, the principles from which came from you. We're thankful for those men and women that gave all to create this new form of government. Folks of great character with the conviction and faith that God's providence was a key to theirs and the nation's success. We now pray, Father, that through our own faith perception and spiritual growth, that this great nation will survive and that we will provide a biblical foundation and a knowledge of our history so that our children can grow up with the same faith, confidence, and understanding of why and how this great country was born and why it still survives today. So, Father, we pray that our attitude toward you will help to maintain for future generations as a free nation where worshiping you will again become commonplace and our focus. Finally, Father, we as citizens of this great nation and members of your royal family glorify you every day through our actions and we will never stop thanking you for the many blessings you've poured out upon this nation and each of us. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.